And he said to them, peace be with you. Jesus has come into this closed room where the disciples and Jesus's companions are debating over these stories of Jesus's resurrection. Did you notice that this is still taking place in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, meaning we've got the story of Jesus's resurrection, then the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus meeting Jesus, and now Jesus appearing for a snack of grilled fish, all in one day. The disciples and the companions of Jesus have been awakened on this first Easter Sunday morning with this incredible news of Jesus's resurrection, and they spend the whole day in disarray and panic, disbelieving, questioning, doubting, challenging each other. And Jesus appears to all of them and says, with his hands displayed, with the wounds still in the wrists. Peace be with you. In ancient Greek, this would have been erene humin, peace to you. But of course, although the Gospels are written in ancient Greek, Many of Jesus' disciples, in fact, all of them, would have most likely known this expression from Hebrew. It is not a Greek expression, but a Jewish and a Hebrew one. Peace be with you. Shalom. Shalom Aleichem. If that sounds familiar, you might know it because as we are in the season of Ramadan, for the Muslim family that are descended from the same Abrahamic ancestor as our Jewish family and our Christian faith, they have a similar greeting. Assalam alaikum. In Arabic, peace be unto you. Very similar to this common Jewish greeting. Shalom alaikum. Peace be with you. Now, as I've noted, it's a common greeting. People would simply say, peace be with you, in the same way that we say, hey, how are you? It didn't necessarily mean that they were flashing a peace sign for disarmament, like in the times of protest against the war in Vietnam. It just meant, hey, how are you doing? Or did it? Because in that same time that Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you, reminding them of the way that they greeted each other in Hebrew, there was another kind of peace spoken of throughout Judea and the rest of the Roman Empire. Pax, the Latin word for peace. Specifically, in the time of Jesus and after his death and resurrection, there was a concept called Pax Romana, developed primarily by historians, but in discussion then to describe this 200-year period of peace in the Roman Empire, starting sometime in the first century. There's debate about when exactly this peace begins. And what that peace meant was that conflict between the principalities within the Roman Empire was mostly over. The internal nations that the Roman Empire had taken over were no longer fighting with each other. 
And the leadership transitions were natural. We had moved away from the kinds of assassinations that characterized the reign of emperors like Julius Caesar. We moved into leadership transitions that happened from father to son or from chosen leader to chosen leader. They were not violent overtakings. It was a time of peace. It was a time of peace with constant military presence in quote-unquote problem areas, including the Principality of Judea, where the entire story of Jesus takes place and almost all of the stories of the early church. This kind of peace, this Pax Romana, also meant the jailing and execution of political insurrectionists, like Jesus. The charge, remember, was hung over his head on that Friday. This is the king of the Jews. That was the charge that was brought to Pontius Pilate. This man is speaking against the emperor and claiming to be a king. He was seen as a political enemy of the empire of Rome. Pax Romana also meant a monarchy and an oligarchy. A emperor was not elected and neither was the Roman Senate. It was chosen by elders who already had their seats in the Senate and who then chose other elders or patriarchs in the community to fill additional seats. There was no popular election, no citizenship representation. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Pax Romana also defined a time in Rome's history when it was deeply suspicious of monotheistic religions. See, Rome had its own set of gods. You may remember that they borrowed or stole a good number of them from the Greek myths of the gods and renamed them. Zeus became Jupiter and so on. And Rome was perfectly fine as an empire with people in their individual principalities and nations that Rome had overtaken still worshipping their own gods as long as they also worshipped the Roman gods. You had to keep the gods appeased, after all. But the problem with monotheistic religions, especially Judaism and Christianity, is that they did not allow the people within those religions to worship multiple sets of gods. There was only one god. And so these were considered religious troublemakers within Pax Romana. In addition, Pax Romana includes, in that 200-year history, the Emperor Nero's horrific persecution and slaughter of Christians in 64 CE, the complete destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 CE, and the violent dispersal of Jews out of Judea in the 2nd century, where essentially this troublesome area was decided to be too troublesome to exist as a united people and they were sent in yet another exile away from their ancestral homeland. Pax Romana, peace for the empire, but not for everyone within it. And Jesus appears to the disciples and says, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. What does true peace look like? Because surely Jesus is not speaking of Pax Romana, the Pax that crucified him, the Pax that continued to oppress and hate all of the people under its reign that dared to challenge its systems. 
a system that continually benefited those on the top and treated as less than human those at the edges. This is not the kind of peace that Jesus is offering. So what does true peace look like? In Jewish tradition, you may know that the words are often interrelated and in fact, verbs, adjectives, and nouns can be almost identical except for the vowels within them. So shalom is a noun that means peace. Shalem is an adjective that means whole or safe or at peace. And shalom is a verb meaning to make complete or to repay or make amends. Peace and wholeness and reparations are all intricately connected in the language in which Jesus was raised and in the religion in which he came. Shalom peace. It didn't just mean quiet. It meant wholeness and safety, and it meant making things complete. In fact, we see it used often in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as a statement about repaying or making amends when someone has been done wrong. Peace is not quiet, but about fixing what is broken. We hear this again in the words of our modern-day prophet, Martin Luther King Jr., when he said in his sermon in March 1956, titled, When Peace Becomes Obnoxious, true peace is not the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. Martin Luther King went on to say, even if we didn't have the tension, we still wouldn't have positive peace. Yes, it is true that if the Negro accepts his place, accepts exploitation and injustice, there will be peace, but it would be an obnoxious peace. It would be a peace that boiled down to stagnant complicity, deadening passivity, and if peace means this, I don't want peace. Unfortunately, as we've come to recognize in the past years, decades, centuries, that kind of peace, that stagnant complicity and deadening passivity is too well known to us in America and even in Minnesota. That kind of peace we have seen in the way that our own city of Minneapolis was originally set up for residential neighborhoods where it was redlined where banks and other organizations actively participated in keeping certain races and ethnicities out of certain neighborhoods. We see that kind of passive, quote unquote, peace happening in white flight in our own city and in cities around the country where people choose to move from their neighborhoods when it becomes too diverse. We see it in our own city and state, in the nation and around the world, in unjust justice systems. In systems that punish people of color more harshly than white uh, counterparts who commit similar crimes. In a system that over and over shows it can take people in without shooting deaths. But unfortunately, consistently does so when those people are white. And when challenges come up where black men or black boys are faced with police presence, there is a much greater likelihood of arrest 
and conviction for longer periods, and there is a much, much greater likelihood of police violence. We see it, this kind of false peace, happening even within our own Minneapolis police force. When, after Jacob Frey said in 2019 that he would no longer permit warrior-style training, including the kinds of chokeholds that we have seen demonstrated over and over, then Union President Bob Kroll said he would pay for the same training out of his pocket. Even when we elected someone who we thought would help with police reform, help make things less violent, dangerous, deadly, especially for marginalized communities. The system resisted. And we see that kind of false peace right now in the military presence in which our city lives this weekend. Where, because of concerns about the reactions to Dante Wright's murder and the ongoing trial and expected verdict of Derek Chauvin, there is great concern about how the city and its citizens and those in surrounding areas will react. And so we have a military presence to keep the peace. But what that peace is going to look like is passivity, is quiet. It is not wholeness for the whole community. It is not safety for the whole community. It is not restoration for a whole community. It is peace for some, safety for some, protection for some. What does it mean when we cannot trust a system that is supposed to protect us because we have seen over and over that it treats people differently based on the color of their skin? Well, we can't call that true peace. So then, what does true peace look like? I don't have a suggestion for how to reform the entire system of policing in Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities and suburbs, in our nation, around the world. I mean, that's really not my area of expertise. And even if it were, I don't know that I could pull that off in the next few hours. What I can tell you about is what true peace looks like within Christian community and Christian identity. What the kind of peace is that Jesus is inviting his disciples to in honoring of his Jewish tradition and in the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he will send on them. True peace looks like confessing and repenting of the ways that we act or think in fear. We have to acknowledge, recognize, painfully sometimes, the ways that we still participate in oppression or in prejudice against others. We confess and we repent, meaning we acknowledge and then we turn away from, we seek to stop the ways that we think or act in fear and the ways that we seek power or control over other people. We like to have a sense of power and control, of some sort of authority over our own destiny. But when we start to put other people at violent risk, when we participate, create, 
live under without question systems that treat people differently. We are unfortunately allowing our own sometimes healthy desire for control over our own safety become a way that others can no longer experience true peace. So we confess and we repent, but that is not the end of true peace. True peace also calls us to share in the concerns of one another. We see this happening in the early church when they gather together often for prayer and for mutual consolation. When people, as Eric Barreto uh, talked about last week, would give away everything, sell everything they had and give all the money to the church so that it could take care of the people within its midst. Sharing in the concerns of one another, prayerfully lifting them up to God and listening rather than rejecting what others say. It is hard sometimes to listen. It is hard to hear once again the painful stories of communities of color. It is hard to hear the stories of how one person feels protected and one person feels completely violated and oppressed. It is hard. It is much easier to pick our side and stay right there. But when we do that, when we refuse to listen to the concerns of one another, when we refuse to share in a wholeness for the whole community, in safety for the whole community, we are looking at passive peace, stagnant peace, not the true peace that Jesus offers. And finally, that true peace invites us to act. We are not invited to stay closed off with the disciples and Jesus's companions, looking at Jesus's wounds and wondering. Jesus sends his people out, out to proclaim good news of forgiveness, of liberation, of healing, of restored community. Jesus sends his people out to act for the good of the neighbor, especially as we remember in remembering the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told as a parable, especially for those who look or are unlike us. Jesus sends his people out, saying peace is not about staying still. Peace is about changing the world. None of this will come quickly. None of this will come in the next five minutes, possibly not in the next five years. But each of us are continually invited by the Jesus who preached peace and the Holy Spirit who leads us in truth to continue to act for the good of our neighbor as seeds of a whole new creation. Amen.